Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. <coughs> We're beginning another brand new week here on Political Rewind. Having taken off yesterday, Indigenous Peoples Day, which some of you uh, prefer to, conti- to continue calling Columbus Day, we think Indigenous Peoples Day makes a lot of sense. Um, so we got a lot to talk about because we did take a three-day weekend, and I want to get right to our panel. It's Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Hi, Tamar. How are you? Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Sure. Glad to have you. Um, Stephen Fowler is with us, GPB's political reporter. Stephen, uh, early voting starts today. People like you and me, we get really excited as political journalists when elections get underway. It always seems to be election season. And this one, there's a lot of interesting (laughs) things to follow. Absolutely. Atia Mitchell uh, is with us. She, of course, is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia, I I hesitate to say you've got a slower week up there because it never really slows down. But but they're out this week, except they're rushing back to vote on to take a vote over about something to do with the debt ceiling. Right. Yes, they're going to the House is expected later today to go ahead and ratify what they need to do to avoid a default on America's debt. So that is probably going to be the only action in Washington. But I'm actually in Georgia for the week. Oh, terrific. Are you here to cover some uh, uh, politics? Yeah, just to catch up with folks. So if you're listening, um, hit me up. I'm, I'm available for meetings. Right. Well, Tia, we're glad you're here for our show today. And Kurt Young, the chairman of the political science department and a political science professor at Clark Atlanta University, is with us today. Kurt, how are you? Doing well, Bill. Looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Yeah, I want to start, if I may, with a talk about the fact that early voting starts today, a three-week period that will continue until, well, I now think of it, and I think many of us think of it as the last day of voting as opposed to Election Day, November uh, 2nd, since so many people now are voting early. And um, uh, tomorrow we're going to talk in just a second about how the mayor's race in Atlanta, which is certainly a premier race across uh, the ballots, is shaping up at this point. But before we do that, let, let's point out tomorrow. There are elections taking place all across the state. Local elections, there are, um, there are T-splots, E-splots, there are mayoral elections, city council races. So uh, people who are not clear on whether they have elections in their community should go to the Secretary of State's website tomorrow, figure out what they may want to start thinking about voting for. Absolutely. Acronyms aplenty with with a lot of these initiatives coming up. But of course, the premier one, as you mentioned, is the Atlanta mayor's race. And so many interesting themes to be watching. Um, Of course, this comeback bid by former Mayor Kasim Reed, it seems very likely that he'll end up in a runoff with Felicia Moore or whoever the second place finisher uh, might be. There's some polls that shows Kasim Reed in second place. Um, So it'll be very interesting to see how that shapes out. And of course, this vote in, um, you know, how 
all of this could impact the cityhood movement in Buckhead. Um, all of the candidates say they don't want that to happen, uh, but of course there's plenty at stake. And on Sunday, there was a debate uh, that WSB-TV held with the Atlanta Police Foundation over crime, the top issue. And it's one that, that candidates are talking about everywhere because they know that is the issue on voters' minds. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, what happened in that uh, debate um, Sunday. Um, and, and let's start with uh, the fact that there were some clashes, uh, Stephen Fowler. Uh, over the weekend, two attorneys for Kasim Reed uh, released information that they say uh, they learned from federal investigators that they are no longer looking at Kasim Reed as having any involvement in the scandals that have plagued City Hall. We haven't known at all whether they are still investigating him for corruption. Any number of people in his, in his administration have already uh, been caught. Um, so despite that, Stephen, on Sunday, uh, the Felicia Moore uh, said that this was an administration, Reed's administration, one that had been plagued by scandal, and uh, and that's what we'd get in another term from Kasim Reed, right? Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of people that have already developed opinions about Kasim Reed and his relationship with ethics based on his time in office, um, and clearly. Uh, even though Reed himself might not be under investigation anymore, many people that were in his circle and extended circle did face prosecution and charges and things for ethical lapses and this culture that was under Reed's administration. So it, it's still like Felicia Moore said, you know, she said it will not be scandal free because it's not scandal free now. Because, you know, it's not a completely pure and blameless, you know, nothing was wrong under Reed's tenure. And so the question is, you know, the Atlanta of 2021 uh, is a lot different than the Atlanta of 2017. And how will the voters that are in the city now paying attention to things like the cop city vote that Atlanta City Council did, paying attention to reactions to crime and racial justice protests and housing and other top issues, you know, is Kasim Reed ready for the 2021 Atlanta that we're currently in? Um, Kurt, I want to pick up on, on, on what Stephen basically uh, said. Uh, I, I think he was suggesting that people have already made up their mind about Kasim Reed one way or the other in terms of uh, whether or not uh, he was at the head of, a, of a, a city administration that allowed corruption to flourish. And the question becomes whether or not uh, it is too late to change that impression among people who have been watching this unfold for years now. And, and there's something else that's changing in the city uh, compared to his last uh, go-round, which has to do with some of the demographic shifts that's taken place, that has taken place in the city. And so I, I agree with the point. The city may be a different playing field as it was uh, prior to that. Now, how does that relate to this notion that uh, there are many who have already had, they already have their minds made up? Well, that, that's true, but you also have a segment of the population who may be reacting to different dynamics uh, than this issue of crime, right? So I think what the, Reed, what the Reed campaign is banking on is that they can tap into this new era by touching on this matter of crime. The argument is that Crime is uh, on the uh, on the increase in the city in a way that it hadn't been uh, under his um, 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 mayoralship. 
However, there is a different discussion. For example, and I appreciate the point around housing, affordable housing, uh, discussions around uh, um, uh, racial justice and social justice matters. Uh, all of these factors will come to bear in this election. In addition to, and I say this every time I'm on the show, Bill, in addition to the extent to which the Atlanta mayoral race is also a reflection of the statewide dynamics, regional dynamics, and national political dynamics, right? And so I, I think that it was, it's just a matter of time before those kind of factors begin to weigh in. And I, I do want to say that we're also looking at a possible runoff. I'm not sure if someone mentioned this already, but we are. I think we're headed to a kind of runoff, which would then amplify, then amplify these other issues, even among those who may have had their minds made up uh, 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 with, with regard to how they see Reed and some of the other uh, candidates. Yeah, uh, tomorrow we have not seen a poll on this race, at least a, a poll by a news organization, since uh, uh, the Atlanta Constitution poll. I think I take that back. I think Channel Eleven had a poll, but 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 the one that I'm looking at now goes back to mid September when the AJC uh, published a poll, and uh, tomorrow it did show that uh, Kasim Reed and uh, uh, and Felicia Moore are basically in an almost statistical dead heat with all the other candidates trailing far behind. But that same poll showed that more than 40% of voters, at least in mid-September, were undecided, which gave some hope to the Sharon Gays and Andre Dickens of, of the campaign. Yeah, and it was about 41% of voters who in the AJC poll said they were undecided in September. And that's a pretty high number uh, for at this point in the cycle. Of course, that number is likely to have gone down. Um, but but it goes to show how much work these candidates have been trying to do to just um, get their name out and, and try and appeal to people. But with so many candidates on the ballot, there's something like 14. Um, it's going to be very hard for somebody like Kasim Reed or Felicia Moore to avoid a runoff. So at this point, the, the question is who it's who who it's going to be. And if, if Kasim Reed has one of those spots, which seems very likely, is that other candidate um, going to be able to capitalize on the anyone but Kasim Reed vote? And it seems like a lot of people are, are going after him to make sure that, that that person can be them. And I think that's why Felicia Moore has become so attractive to the anyone but Kasim crowd, because we know that with Atlanta and those changing demographics that people have mentioned already on this panel, there's going to be a lot of thoughtfulness and a lot of um, quote unquote identity politics, if you will, that feed into the runoff. And um, I think there are a lot of people in that anyone but Kasim crowd who are worried about Kasim Reed taking advantage of that if his opponent in the runoff is Sharon Gay or a white person, if we're going to be frank about it. And so I think that the people who are looking into Kasim Reed in a runoff, who do we think will be better? Kind of think about back in 2020 when Democrats were saying up against Donald Trump, who do we think can beat him head to head? Not necessarily who's our favorite. Who do we think can beat him head to head? And I think that crowd who's looking at that for Kasim Reed thinks that Felicia Moore will do better head to head than perhaps some of these other candidates. And I think that's why, number one, you're seeing support coalesce around her, but you're also seeing Kasim Reed supporters starting to focus on Felicia Moore, which I think also tells you a lot in that they're attacking her. 
Um, Stephen, let me get you back in, and then I know Tamar, you want to weigh in as well. Um, go back to that September, mid-September poll by the AJC to uh, look at a number that kind of confirms um, what we're saying about whether Kasim Reed is out from under the shadow of the federal investigation that went on for so long. It As of that poll, and there's no reason why this figure would have changed, I don't think, uh, in, in the week since then, as of that poll, 22%, that's it, only 22% of the people polled say they have yet to make up their mind about Kasim Reed. So a lot of people already knew what they felt about him. And uh, back then, uh, the, the majority of people uh, were uh, uh, un- unhappy about Kasim Reed. So, so it does show that even though he's, uh, he's up there uh, likely to be in a runoff, uh, he's, he's had work to do to try to get into that position. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you take it as a composite. Most people know what they feel about Kasim Reed, and a large chunk of Atlanta voters don't know who they're going to vote for and support in the mayoral race. That means that for a candidate like Felicia Moore, you know, or somebody that makes a runoff, you know, kind of like Kia was saying, is that there is a calculation of getting to a runoff and then voting for somebody who's not Kasim Reed. You know, there may be 14 candidates on the ballot, but maybe four of them are viable uh, to get to the point of a runoff. And so I think the question of who that second person is is not as clear cut. You know, many polls have Felicia Moore there. She's the city council president. She's a known figure, uh, just like uh, Antonio Brown is an Atlanta city council member, just like Andre Dickens is an Atlanta city council member. So I think you're still seeing how this is shaking out of figuring out who the anyone but Kasim Lane is. And I think the latest campaign finance filings show that it's really, you know, either Sharon Gay, Felicia Moore or Andre Dickens that are the ones that are getting the financial support. You can see just how much the the temperature is uh, is rising. What was so interesting about the Sunday debate on WSB um, was just how it's the most I've seen them truly attack each other, and especially Kasim Reed kind of hitting back. Um, you know, and initially he was kind of cruising a little bit, but he really went hard after Felicia Moore after she mentioned all the you know the city hall corruption probe and stuff like that. He really drilled in on votes she took on the city council having to do with property tax rates. Um, affordable housing, that sort of thing. He also went after Andre Dickens, who um, in some polls I've seen has been rising and and obviously they have a a long history together. And so you're seeing the candidates in their actions. um, You know, you, you can see not desperation, but, but just how people are so aware that this is going to be a runoff and they need to start wounding um, their opponents. You you know, it's interesting. uh, We had, at Clark Atlanta University, we had two mayoral um, 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 forums. The second one was open to a larger audience. So I, we invited all 14. In the first one, though, we only had five uh, leading candidates. And you can tell tomorrow at that first session, you can see them, uh, the other uh, candidates, begin to test. I won't necessarily argue that they were testing, but they were certainly beginning to chip away at Reed's uh, 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 um, um, record in the past, um, um, these accusations of corruption and what have you. And the difference between then and, and just the other day 
was that then Reed seems to be seemed to respond in standing on the strength of his record, right? He didn't quite attack. What I heard just recently in the um, debate that we're discussing now uh, was where he did seem to uh, uh, turn uh, his, his sights in more of an attack mode. Of course, we'll have to see where that leads, um, especially as his his opponents become even more uh, sharpened in their critique, and specific in their critique of his pre- previous record. Um, okay, uh, before we move on, uh, uh, because uh, tomorrow you, you made a, a note of it, um, uh, the uh, fundraising in the campaign really shows Kasim Reed with an enormous advantage. He's raised something like $2.8 million as of the most recent reporting period. He has almost a million dollars cash on hand. He'll have more to finish the final three weeks. Um, you, you know, uh, Felicia Moore has raised $1.1 million and has about 450 or so thousand on hand. Sharon Gay has got, uh, she raised 1.7 million, but more than a million of that is from her own uh, personal resources. She lent herself that money. Um, And so you, you know, fundraising is not the election, uh, but it is clear that Kasim Reed continues to have the power to attract uh, big dollars from uh, many funders. Uh, we should also point out Andre Dickens had raised a million dollars, and uh, and and so he's done relatively well uh, too. Uh, wh- what should we make of that, if anything, Stephen? Well, I mean, I I think what you make of it is, uh, you know, obviously you've got Kasim Reed that has high name identification. Felicia Moore has high name identification. Sharon Gay, most of the money that she's raised, like you said, two-thirds of it is self-loans, but most of the money that she spent is on media buys and other things, getting her name out there and telling people about her record and what she wants to do. And so, you know, it's, you know, fundraising does not equal election results, but it is a really good proxy for what that message is and how effectively it's being received. You know, Andre Dickens as well, you know, raising a lot of money, surging in the polls, uh, getting his information out there. And so I, I think the money pouring in both from inside city limits and from really all over the country, because Kasim had fundraisers in Wa- uh, Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., shows that you know there are people paying attention to this mayor's race, and it's not necessarily going to be something that's low energy, low interest, low turnout. Um, okay, um, I, I, I want to move on from the mayor's race. We still have plenty of time to talk about it in uh, the weeks ahead. But I do want to point out that uh, the mayor's debate, the mayor, mayoral candidates are going to debate again uh, today, tonight. Um, the uh, GPB TV will have a debate starting at 7 o'clock on TV and at gpb.org, also Atlanta Press Club Facebook page. Um and uh, uh, that's going to happen from 7 to 8. That's with the upper half of the candidates, the candidates polling in the upper half. For, earlier than that, from 5 to 6, uh, GPB-TV will air uh, the uh, second half, uh, the lower tier of candidates debating. So you'll get a chance to see all of them in action on uh, GPB-TV and at gpb.org uh, tonight. That's a partnership with the uh, Atlanta Press Club. Let's do this. Let's get our first uh, uh, break of the show out of, way, uh, out of the way. When we come back, a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. 
We're joined today by Tamar Hallerman of the AJC, Stephen Fowler, GPB News, Tia Mitchell, Washington reporter for the AJC, and Kurt Young, chair of the political science department at Clark Atlanta University. Um, you know, with elections unfolding across the state starting today, Stephen, you you were really deeply involved in looking at what the Senate Bill 202, the new election laws in Georgia, how it was going to impact voting. And this is the first election in which we'll see some of those new provisions uh, being uh, in, in, in practice uh, in, in the election. So as an example, Stephen, I've already gotten emails from a number of listeners who have been very distressed about the amount of time that they could get, they had to get absent have had to get absentee votes in, uh, getting applications for absentee votes. They say that the process has been foreshortened in such a way that they're having a very difficult time voting. But that's only one of a number of changes that are going to ha- could have an impact on this election, right, Stephen? Right. So one of the biggest changes is absentee voting. The window to request a ballot is a lot narrower than it was before. So uh, you have to submit it much closer to the election. The deadline is a week earlier, so you can't request it the Friday before. It's got to be two weeks before. Um, still has to be received by Election Day. But, you know, there are also changes to the application that has a new identification requirement to it, but also for early voting. Today's the first day of early voting. Um, Some counties may add more weekend early voting options in future elections, maybe not necessarily the municipal elections because there are lower turnouts and, you know, not every polling place is used because not every place has an election. Um, But then there's also going to be uh, nice tests for some of the changes that should make the vote counting go faster, like processing the absentee ballots earlier and uh, requiring elections officials to count all the votes without stopping, uh, taking a little bit of breaks here and there. So uh, there's a lot of changes. Many we won't see the full effect of for these municipal elections because they will be lower overall turnout. There won't be five million people voting in the next couple of weeks. Tia, meanwhile, um, it's it's interesting that um, the the effort in in Congress uh, to pass a federal voting law, Democrats in the House who have really pushed hard for a John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, had, which was so prominently uh, part of the news headlines for quite a while, has really faded. As the as the Congress and the White House wrestle with the infrastructure bill, wrestle with the social policy agenda that uh, President Biden's been trying to put forward, and and it does feel as this as as the federal voting effort is really gotten to a point where we're, we're just not. I mean, we're not counting on getting very far with it in the Senate, are we, Tia? Right, and it's not just the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. There's also a new kind of compromise voting rights bill that moderate Senator Joe Manchin helped negotiate. So they came down from kind of the, they modified a little bit of their position in hopes of getting Republicans to at least agree to um, overcome the filibuster. And that's not happening either. So really, it's stalled because in the Senate you have the filibuster. You need 10 Republicans to 
let Democrats move forward on these voting um, bills, and that is not happening. So um, without a change to the filibuster, which doesn't look like it's happening either, these voting rights proposals at the federal level are going nowhere, which means that each individual state is allowed to kind of um, take its its voting laws where the leaders of the state want to go. And then as we see in conservative states that Joe Biden won, like Georgia, they're passing these new laws that we're now talking about. Kurt, jump in on this. Well, you know, when part of what's happening, I think, on, on the Hill um, on bill is that I think the Biden administration is really confronted with the challenges uh, facing con- conventional wisdom, right? Uh, on the one hand, um, there is an expectation that um, uh, the, the candidate uh, or the party that holds the White House will lose seats in Congress, right? That's kind of a conventional wisdom. But now you're seeing the Biden administration's agenda being swallowed up uh, with this debate around the um, these two bills, right? Um, whether it's the infrastructure bill on the one hand uh, versus the Build Back Better bill. And so we are seeing a, 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 the attempt by the Biden administration to try to push these uh, particular agenda, agenda items forward in the middle of uh, an environment that betrays uh, uh, conventional wisdom. We're looking at an environment that where the electorate is split right down the middle, right? There's a kind of an evaporating middle uh, a swing vote or middle uh, um, um, Middle, I don't want to say middle class, but a middle section of the electorate that can kind of be counted upon to swing uh, with given the given direction of uh, of the um, discussion. I think that, that we're losing uh, 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 that perspective. There's also um, all of this unfolding in the context of a, of a global pandemic, right? Um, and so I, I think that uh, the big concern in Congress right now is that everything is going to be held hostage until the administration figures out a way to get past these uh, this conundrum with regard to these two uh, um, these two um, um, bills. Um, and I don't know that I see a smooth landing uh, in the in the in, in the um, future. I think um, and then there's one other piece that I think is important, Bill, to add. The, the Democratic Party is grappling with a newfound. Um, level of strength among a, con- a progressive segment of the party, right? Um, the recent history has been that in situations like this, remember, in situations like this, this isn't new. What the, what the progressive wing of the party would have done in the past would have been to capitulate on what might have been defined as pragmatic, right? Uh, in the conversation right now, the discussion is to label the infrastructure bill as the pragmatic bill. And it's causing a change in the discussion in the sense that the uh, um, progressive are no longer falling in, in line in terms of that, that uh, tendency in the past. And I think the Biden administration is having to make sense of all of this with this uh, uh, midterm election looming uh, just a year from now. Um, it's, it, it's interesting that you take us in that uh, uh, direction, uh, Kurt, because uh, tomorrow, uh, that's, that's all of a sudden in the last few days, and, and Tia, you're going to want to weigh in on this too, I know, we are seeing an increasing number of stories coming out of uh, national news organizations uh, saying that uh, for the first time, Democrats are now really, really worried that that President Biden's approval ratings, um, his perception um, among voters, even even if you're not counted in those approval ratings, has shifted dramatically. 
And Democrats are beginning to be very concerned about whether or not 2022 is in jeopardy because the president is having so much difficulty with his agenda and uh, coming across as being seen as strong by many people. And Tamar, the word malaise has been used a couple of times about Joe Biden. And we haven't heard that word used about a president of the United States since Jimmy Carter. And we know that stuck to him for decades. And he's in a tough spot because I think Democrats realize that when else, or or it's going to be a long time before, you know, it's rare in Washington now for one party to kind of control the White House the House and the Senate at the same time. And so people sort of know that it's almost this like once in a decade opportunity where this is their moment to kind of push through their agenda. Um, As Kurt alluded to, you know, midterm elections tend to be a really bad time for the party in power. And Democrats are expected to lose the House, if not the Senate, where they have the barest majorities in both chambers. So I think Democrats are very much aware that this is their moment um, to do much of anything for Joe Biden. And I think that's why you're seeing the, the Democrats so divided and kind of taking both parts of his agenda hostage, this infrastructure bill and this huge social spending package. You know, the the liberals who want the social spending package know that moderates desperately want infrastructure. And so they're kind of holding that bit hostage. And so it makes it really, really hard if you're Joe Biden, who just wants to get anything done. You're seeing, um, you know, approval ratings uh, really shrink. He's down, I think, to the low 40s in what I've seen. And um, I think you have moderates like Carolyn Bordeaux, who are really hoping that something like an infrastructure bill can help them hold on to their seats. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how this is going to end. Maybe Tia can shed a little more light on it. Well, um, Tia- you I was going to say, Tamar, you have you have the D.C. experience, so I always defer to you. But I, I think that Democrats will get something done eventually because they know that their window is closing. It is highly unlikely that they will keep the House after um, November's midterms, next November's midterms, and they also could lose control of the Senate. Um, And I think they want to do something sooner rather than later. Um, Speaker Pelosi wrote her colleagues a letter just last night. She's starting to lay out a path forward, which is instead of doing everything a little bit less to lower the price tag of that big sweeping social spending and climate change bill, she's now advocating doing a few things well. Um, from the Democratic standpoint, of course. So I do think eventually it's messy right now, and it's all Democrats. So, yes, Democrats are suffering from the public perception that, you know, that's the byproduct of being in control and, um, of government in Washington. You get all the you get all the benefits, but you also get all the blame. And also, I will say that Republicans know this, and so all they can do is be obstructionist, you know, Rep- And that's why Republicans, especially Mitch McConnell, chaos is kind of part of their goal. And uh, amplifying Democrats' inability thus far to get on one accord, amplifying that, making it look like this disaster is also something that Republicans are doing right now. Because, again, that's kind of their that's their role right now is in the minority. Again, I do think Democrats will be able to get something. The question is, will it be able to translate to the people back home, not just what was done, but how will it 
benefit people. That's something I think Democrats are really nervous about, that, again, the messaging is not translating to, like, Democrats did this and it's beneficial. It goes to to show about all the distrust in Washington. We always talk about Democrats mistrusting Republicans and vice versa. But what's so interesting about all of this is it's showing the extent of the mistrust that's happening within parties, within the Democratic Party. And all of this is happening because they have the the barest of majorities in both chambers. All it takes in the Senate, which is 50-50 right now, is one senator to kind of mess it all up or, or tap the brakes. And so you're seeing a lot of frustration with people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Uh, among other Democrats. And you're seeing it in the House as well with the progressives and the more central um, blue dogs. So, you know, they they have to remember that they're on the same team, that Republicans are not going to help them because it's not their jobs to, to help them, um, or at least that's not where the political system is right now. Um, and so they're going to have to take a leap and, and at some point um, pass something. But as Tia mentions, I, I wonder how much voters will really, you know, how much it'll really register to voters. I don't think they really care as much about the the minutia of all of this. At, at some point, they just want to get something done and politics be damned. Stephen, um, you know, it, it is conceivable, as Tia uh, points out, that they'll, they'll figure out some way to pass some version of the social policy agenda along with the infrastructure bill. But one thing that, that apparently the president's uh, numbers are reflecting is something that cannot be resolved uh, by uh, coming together or by compromise, the coronavirus. Uh, you know, with the Delta variant continuing to surge, um, with concerns about whether we're ever going to get out of this mess, it's had a major impact on President Biden, and uh, and that's not there. And and there's another catch twenty two to that because so many of the reasons we're told by public health officials that the virus continues is those who are not vaccinated are spreading it, and in many ways those are Republicans. So Stephen, the president in a bind that's hurting him. Yeah, I mean, everything has become a polarized issue, whether it's handling the virus, whether it's uh, infrastructure, whether it's uh, voting rights or, you know, you name it, everything is an antagonistic issue. And we see that with the coronavirus. We see that with responses over potential mandates, over vaccine mandates or uh, schools, uh, masking and different policies for schools. And it just is kind of a losing proposition. But as more time passes, more people are vaccinated or more people have uh, been sickened with COVID-19 and have some sort of natural immunity or unfortunately are passed away because of the virus that the more time passes, hopefully the less of an impact it will have and things will be able to, quote unquote, go back to normal, even though there is no such thing as normal anymore. But, you know, now there are concerns about the holidays and we get mixed messaging from federal health officials about what you can do for Thanksgiving and what you can do for Christmas. And it just certainly doesn't help matters. Yeah. And then you add to that, you add to that the the, the kind of um, 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 uh, the other issues that are, are triggered by the that have been triggered by this pandemic that, that happen to just the very basic ways that people interact. Uh, and the frustrations of not being able to get back to life as normal, right? And the extent to which that's reflected in poll numbers and frustrations uh, among the electorate. But, you know, Bill, I'd like to uh, add, I think uh, Tamar made an important point that I'd like to just uh, add a few uh, points to um, quickly. 
you, you mentioned um, this the, the razor thin um, um, uh, lead that the Democrats have in these uh, in the two uh, houses of Congress, right, in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, and it it's made it even more. It's amplified the extent to which there's a bit of frustration in the administration to fall back on at least two possible ways to address that problem. Um, one possible way is to deal with the filibuster, right, um, and to uh, 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 change the filibuster, the structure of the filibuster and the votes necessary. And then another way, you know, there's no saying that says that Democrats uh, fall in love, Republicans fall in line. And there seems to be a discussion that says that the administration is not being tough enough on the two senators who seem to be standing in front of uh, key parts of, of the agenda. Um, and uh, I think part of what the administration is grappling with is an increasing level of frustration among those who want him to uh, Biden to do more in pressing those uh, um, two uh, issues. But I think all of it, though, I agree, Bill, connects to this this uh, uh, issues around the these issues around the uh, virus, the pandemic. All right, Kurt Young gets the last word on this uh, segment of Political Rewind. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, I'm going to turn to uh, Stephen first. Stephen Fowler, I'm going to ask you, what the heck are we learning about some 300 uh, ballot registration applications being shredded in Fulton County? We'll do that and more after these messages. Stephen Fowler, uh, you reported a story, and I think you may have been the first one to get this story, uh, that uh, Fulton County election officials have fired two workers uh, because they were seen shredding something like 300 voter registration applications. Just to be clear, not ballots, uh, not even absentee ballot requests, voter registration requests. Tell us a little more about this story. So to register to vote in Georgia, most people use uh, an online portal that the Secretary of State has, or it's done automatically by interacting with the Department of Driver Services. You know, you get a new driver's license, they update your voter registration. But you can still register to vote on a paper form, and that's what is in discussion here in Fulton County. Apparently, allegedly, two Fulton County workers decided to shred several paper voter application forms instead of fully process them. Now, that's against the law that says all election materials must be stored for 24 months after the election. Uh, it's also not good because uh, because it's shredded. We don't know how many of those 300 applications were legitimate new registrations or updated registrations or if they were illegible and you couldn't process them anyway, or if they were things like Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, things that wouldn't be real voter registrations anyway. We also don't know a lot because as soon as it happened, Fulton County says they investigated, fired the two workers, notified the Secretary of State's office, and notified the Fulton County District Attorney. So it's an investigation mode and everyone's got tight lips except for the Secretary of State's office, who used this opportunity to call for the Department of Justice to get involved. And uh, now, also want to be clear, Georgia doesn't have party registration. So it's not like somebody shredded a bunch of Democratic applications or Mm -hmm. Republican applications. 
Um, it's not a partisan thing, but especially with Fulton County already under the microscope, it's really, really puzzling behavior at a really, really bad time. And already I've seen a ton of conspiracies from the left and the right about what happened and what this means. Yeah, and I just think I get why Fulton election officials wanted to respond so quickly, so publicly. They want to look like they're being transparent and they're doing it the right way. And that as soon as we saw a problem, we fired those people, we reported it up the chain, we did everything right because they don't want, they didn't want blowback. But it's also like almost like a catch-22 because they went public so quickly but with very little details, and that is allowing people to fill in the blanks and create their own conspiracy theories and to read between the lines. And and so it looks very bad, and we don't really have the details to really say what happened. And I think that's not serving them well because the people who do want an excuse to say, see, this is why Fulton County should be taken over. This is why Fulton County is still a mess. This is feeding into their narrative, absent of the the truth and absent of details. Um, and again, I don't know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that keeping quiet would have helped either, because then that would have been a whole nother issue. But I think it just shows how sensitive Fulton County elected officials are to this whole stakeover state takeover issue, how sensitive they are to looking like they don't have it together. And to your point, Stephen, I'm sure how ticked off they are at these two employees, even if they thought they were doing the right thing, because that's what we don't know. These employees may have thought they were doing the right thing and maybe just didn't know the record retention policies or, you know, thought that they had, they were duplicates and they didn't have to. Um, but it's, it's just caused a mess. All right, let's be careful here, uh, because you're right, Tia, we don't know, but I think we do know that uh, that what happened here uh, probably was done in a, uh, maybe I should be careful, but it seems it was done in an irresponsible way. Any, any way you would do this would be irresponsible. But Tamar, the, the real question becomes just what kind of impact does this have when legislate Republicans get back in the Capitol and start looking at whether they want to activate their right to take over a local election board. Um, and this is an, a, a great opportunity for them to uh, uh, think about doing that with, again, think about it with Fulton County. But it goes beyond that. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, when we see things like this happen, we suddenly recognize that systems that we've taken for granted for years are more fragile than we ever thought. The electoral apparatus <laughs> depends on people doing things correctly. And, all, and, and in the last election cycles or so, we've suddenly started wondering about how that process unfolds. Sure. And even just kind of the, the human part of it where you realize there are humans, you know, involved and, you know, maybe this this was something nefarious or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just, you know, stupidity or, or somebody didn't know what they were doing. But either way, it doesn't look good. And as you mentioned, as the legislature starts to look at this, a lot of nuance quickly falls away once politicians get involved. Um, mm. Fulton was has long been under the microscope. They had a very disastrous um, primary <laughs> day in 2020. And so this certainly isn't going to 
make them any more allies in the legislature. Kurt? Well, you know, uh, I think we saw this coming um, in terms of the, uh, let, me, let me back up a little bit. In addition to those dynamics we just mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned, Bill, or someone mentioned that this is a human enterprise, right? And so I would argue that there have always been, we've always had these kind of unfortunate mishaps uh, uh, take place in these national, uh, in these elections. It's always been the case because they're run by human beings who are flawed. Right, the difference now is that the environment is so charged that everything is, is, is amplified, right? Everything is now exaggerated in the sense that it becomes a political uh, lightning rod. Um, the question, though, uh, I, I would ask is the extent to which it can be seen as a piling on effect that would trigger, as they say, an equal and opposite reaction, right? Um, the extent to which Fulton County, let, let's be clear, Fulton County was clear, uh, was key in the electing uh, uh in the 2020 election just as you saw in these various urban settings throughout the country uh, whether it's from the philadelphia area uh et cetera et cetera et cetera right um uh and so once again atlanta will will will, will and fulton county will, will will figure squarely into what will come out of the 20 uh the this election as well as the uh 22 the 20 uh 22 election and there can be there can be a response to that as uh, as an example of piling on, or or stated differently, um, 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 uh, the Senate bill actually producing the kind of disenfranchisement of the uh, uh, electoral base in Fulton County as one was criticizing uh, it to be in the first place. So, Stephen, uh, to put a period on this part of the discussion, do we expect to hear more about this, or uh, is this just going to the Secretary of State's office is going to choose not to tell us more about what may have happened here, or Fulton County, rather, tell us more about what may have happened. I mean, I suspect we will hear more soon because I would also say that this is actually an example of the system working as it should. And somebody saw something happen, they said something to the Fulton County superiors. They have the evidence. That's how they know that there's 300. They put out a statement saying, Here's how to check your registration. If you think you're concerned, call us, let us know. If you show up to vote and your registration is not there, vote provisional and we will investigate it and make sure this works. I mean, there are humans involved in every part of the election process and nothing is ever going to be perfect. Um, (laughs) In an ideal world, there's not employees shredding things, but you know, this wasn't covered up. They reported it immediately. They took quick action. And for the people that might be affected, they're not going to be able to they're not going to be disenfranchised if there were real people affected in this. So I would argue it works. That's exactly it's I'm really glad you made that point. Yes, humans are involved in every step of this. And uh, most of the time we know that fraud isn't involved in elections. And in the long run, many elections are gotten right by the very people who are handling them. Um, all right. Just briefly, we don't have a lot of time, but uh, Politico had a story, speaking of election officials, about Brad Raffensperger the other day. Here's the lead. Donald Trump never wastes an opportunity to attack Georgia's top statewide Republican office holders for failing to help him overturn the 2020 election results. Brad Raffensperger is the only one who refuses to shut up and take it. Raffensperger who has borne the brunt of Trump's wrath as as the top election official in the state, is running a damn the torpedoes re-election campaign that directly confronts the former president, even though it could cost him the GOP nomination. 
So in a way, Tamar, I think that had that lead, it's very dramatic, but I think it sort of overstates the case. Yes, Ravensburger continues to insist that the election was legitimate, contrary to what Trump believes. But he's taken a lot of other actions in which he's uh, trying to use the power of his office to to hint at his concern about how elections unfold, like referring the shredding to DOJ. Exactly. And you see, um, you know, um, his comments about Stacey Abrams, comparing Stacey Abrams recently to um, to Donald Trump. So this is still a man who's running in a Republican primary uh, for reelection next year. So, um, you know, there, there's a great quote in the in this Politico story from Lynn Westmoreland, a former congressman from Western Georgia, who I used to cover on the Hill, who said, uh, just kind of talking about the long odds that Brad Raffensperger faces and how there, he saw an internal poll with 87 percent of Republican primary voters who felt like the election was stolen. Uh, quote, with these kinds of numbers, I just don't see Brad getting through the primary. And so. Um, you know, people nationally are closely watching this race, and I think um, it'll be interesting to see. But I think a lot of folks don't think Brad Raffensperger has uh, much of a future uh, in Republican elected politics going forward. <laughs> Tia? Yeah, and I think one of the differences for Brad Raffensperger is he's got someone with name recognition, big Trump approval, um, and a you know, a, a record in Jody Heist that is a formidable primary opponent, whereas um, Brian Kemp is able to, looks like he may get past his primary because he doesn't have such stiff competition in the primary. Stephen, a quick word from you before we leave. Counter-counterpoint, David Bell Isle is also running a very aggressive campaign that could end up splitting the Trump vote to help Raffensperger in a runoff because David Bell Isle is actually out there running campaign ads, attacking Brad and Jody, and kind of having a more resonant messaging that is implied within the Trump endorsement that Jody Heist just isn't putting out on the campaign trail. So we could see things split. All right. Uh, all this means that not only are we going to have fun watching the municipal and local elections in 2021, but we've got more than a year ahead of us of election news to cover here on Political Rewind. Uh, uh, Stephen Fowler, Kurt Young, Tia Mitchell, Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much for a great conversation. Getting us started after a three-day weekend. We're here for the rest of the week, back again with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear your mask indoors, and now really is the time to go get a flu shot if you haven't had that one yet, because I already know you're vaccinated for COVID. See you all tomorrow.